This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This is the Book Riot Podcast, a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This is episode 164. We're recording on Thursday, June 30th. I'm Rebecca Shinsky. I'm here with Amanda Nelson while Jeff is traveling this week, and we're coming to you from bookriot.com. I just realized we could have done this together in like a cool next sitting next to each other sort of way. We could have put it on the YouTube channel. We haven't done that before. I guess Jeff and I have had such weird experiences recording the show in the same room where like it's always really hot when we've done it (laughs) and we just get sweaty and like are sitting too close to each other trying to share a microphone that that it didn't occur to me. But we totally could have. We're like 15 minutes apart from each other right now. We We could just sit on your couch and like Millie could join us. Yeah, and bark at some things. Millie's been in my YouTube videos before, so <laughs> like not by any planning of mine, more by like, you know, Basset Hound wanders into the shop. Yeah. I want to be on TV, Mom. Basically. What are you doing? What are you doing? Is that the internet? <laughs> Can I smell it? Can I smell it? <laughs> Tell my fans I said hi. <laughs> Um, Before we jump into the show and our first sponsor, I want to update our listeners. I don't know if you caught like last week's show or if I even told you because I can't remember what we talk about for work and for not work. But I've had this like saga with possibly having a bajillion dollars in library fines. Yes, you talked about it. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So last Thursday after Jeff and I recorded the show, I had resolved that I was going to go to the library and like make good and make friends with my librarians again and, you know, at least get in their good graces or face my fears about having a jillion dollars in library fines. So I went to yoga and I got very mellow and I prepared myself for whatever my eventuality was going to be. And I like sat in the library parking lot, pep talking myself for a few minutes. I snapchatted it. I was so nervous. And I went in and I was like, okay, it's been a really long time since I've been here. I can't find my library card. So I'd like to get a new one. And then I just handed her my ID and crossed my fingers and like hoped that she wouldn't say, you owe us a million dollars and you have to go to jail now. <laughs> and I didn't owe a million dollars. I had to pay them one dollar to get a new library card. And that was it. And I was so relieved when she was like, oh, yes, OK, here's your new library card. Welcome. That I couldn't bring myself to be like, could you check my records and see if I once owed you a million dollars? And that just got like wiped out because I am sure that I did. <laughs> I think what they do in your county, which is kind of where I used to live, is mm-hmm. if you owe library fines if throughout your year and you don't pay them, then they lump them into your property taxes. Oh. So you probably paid your million dollars and you just didn't realize it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good thing Bob's not listening to the show going like, is that why that was higher than I thought when I paid that thing? Library <laughs> secrets we keep from our spouses. <laughs> Oh, boy. Okay. Well, so if you were following the saga of my library shame spiral, um, I have recovered. I'm going to be a library person now, or at least I can be a library person without fear. It feels good. 
I faced my fears. Good um, job. I did have to put it in my to-do list thing that is like a gamified to-do list. It's an app called Habitica. It's um, And I'm using it with our friend Jen, or your co-host on Get Booked. Um, and so you are like, I have to do this thing, and then you assign it points. And so I was like, this is going to be really hard. I'm so nervous. So at least I got to like my little mermaid tail avatar in Habitica. I got to earn points for facing down the library. Uh, okay. I faced the library and I survived. <laughs> I did. And I'm sorry to all the librarians who listened to this show who were like, we're really nice. I know you're really nice. This was, I was, you know, I had a thing to work through. Um, we are sponsored this week by Audible. You and I both love Audible. And we've talked about Audible a jillion times on the show because it's the best way to incorporate reading time into the times of your life that you would not otherwise be reading. I'm a gym audiobook person and a driving audiobook person and a while I'm walking the dog audiobook person. And then whatever time bleeds into the like immediately following those activities. If I haven't finished a chapter, I'll like wash some extra dishes or something just to get to finish listening to what I'm listening to. Um, Audible.com provides over 250,000 titles from leading audiobook publishers, but not just audiobook publishers. They have broadcasters, entertainers, magazine and newspaper publishers, business information providers, and they even have some of their own like Audible original content, comedy shows and newsy things. It's definitely worth checking out. The Audible app is free. It works on iPhones, iPad, Android, and Windows phones, any kind of mobile device that you can imagine. It probably works on that. You can listen on your Kindle Fire. If you're still rocking an MP3 player, it works on over 500 of those. And unlike a streaming or rental service with Audible, you own your books, so you can access them anytime, anywhere, right from your smartphone or your other device, even if you eventually cancel your Audible membership. They have this awesome thing that I love called the Great Listen Guarantee, whereas if you don't like the book that you've chosen, if you start listening and like the narrator doesn't work or the book just isn't quite working for you, for whatever reason, you can exchange any book you aren't happy with for any other title, anytime, no questions asked. This feels like magic to me (laughs) when I do it. Like It's really this easy to do a customer service thing. And just for our listeners, Audible is offering a free 30-day trial membership. So you can go to audiblepodcast.com slash bookriot to start your free 30-day trial. It shows your support for the show. It gets you a free 30 days of Audible. And as always, we'll give you some recommendations. Um, I am listening to Lab Girl by Hope Jarens, which Jeff has talked about on the show. And I think you just listened to it too, Amanda. Yes, I did. It's so good. It's so good. It feels to me like it's this year's H is for Hawk in Mm -hmm. some ways. Like uh, she's a scientist. She studies plants. And uh, this is her memoir of first growing up in like a very stoic, quiet community that is steeped in winter for nine months of the year and uh, in the American Midwest. Now she lives in Hawaii. So that's quite a correction. Um, And how she got into doing science and into doing lab work. And there's this meditative quality to like the writing is really gorgeous. And there's there is this meditative quality to like how she learns to inject IV bags at her first hospital job and then to what it's like being in the lab and going through all of the motions and trying to solve a problem using the scientific method. And it's feels in the early chapters to me a lot like those early chapters of H is for Hawk, where Helen McDonald is sitting in the dark waiting for her hawk to trust her. And you're like, how is this so captivating? (laughs) (laughs) It's so good. I'm really, really loving it. Um, Have you listened to anything good lately? I'm listening to She Matters, which you recommended to me um, 
well, recommended to a listener or a listener of Get Booked, who I was researching titles for, but then you <laughs> said that it would be a good pick. I don't remember her name, Susanna Sonnenberg, I think. Yeah, is the yeah, author. that's her name. But it's, it's just a collection of reminiscences about female friendship that the author has written about, you know, her best friend in elementary school, her best friend in college, her mother, um, all of these really interesting um, relationships. I feel like it's like a nonfiction version of the Elena Ferrante Napoleon, Napoleon, what am I saying? Napoleon, Neapolitan. Neapolitan. Lord have mercy. <laughs> Neapolitan series, a nonfiction work, because she's showing you the warts and all that comes mm-hmm. along with uh, all sorts of friendships. Um, but yeah, it's so good. Her writing is excellent. Yeah, I loved that collection so much because it's like, here is a friendship that I ruined. Here is a friendship that changed my life. Here's a friendship that someone else ruined. Here's a friendship that went one way and it could have gone another way. And it's just so, oh, it's so good. Mm-hmm. I think that if you've like already given all of your girlfriends <laughs> tiny beautiful things, now you give all of your girlfriends she matters. Yep. Books to give your girlfriends. That's a thing. That is totally a thing. If only we had some podcasts on which we could recommend these things. (laughs) If only we had a site where we could write posts (laughs) recommending books to people. Note to self. (laughs) So if Lab Girl or She Matters sound good to you, or if you want other recommendations, you can hit us up on Twitter. I'm always happy to talk audiobooks. Go to audiblepodcast.com slash bookriot today to start your free 30-day trial. And thanks again to Audible. Okay, it has been a really interesting week. Mm. Um, and it was it's so funny because yesterday we were like, it's been kind of quiet in publishing. What's going to happen? Uh, before we really get into the news, a couple updates for our listeners. Last week, Jeff and I talked about uh, how the ebook retailers were issuing credits to customers because of the iBooks um, settlement. And we were wondering what the biggest settlement was that one of our readers or listeners had gotten. We heard from several of you. And so far, the winner is a woman named Sarah. Uh, Her Twitter handle is Sarah's Shelves, Sarah with an H at the end. And she got $208 in in Amazon credit. (laughs) Which she then immediately turned around and used to buy more books, which I love so much. By the time that you had sent her a treat yourself gift, she was like, oh, I already have. (laughs) Yes, girl, our people. (laughs) Right. And I did not go backwards and do the math on like how much she would have had to spend on Amazon to get the 208 in credit. Uh, But I commend you. Sarah, it reminded me of um, when I worked for Barnes and Noble, once a quarter, they would give you your earnings statement or your benefit statement. And it would show, you know, like, here's how much uh, you've gotten in health insurance benefits and blah, blah, blah. And one of the items was, here's how much money you have saved using your Barnes and Noble employee discount, which I believe was 30% at the time. Um, but you could look at it and then be like, oh, crap. I'm like, not going to reverse engineer that math. <laughs> yeah, right. Nope, if nope, I've nope. saved that many dollars, then I have spent a lot more dollars than I would like to consider. Um, So Sarah, thank you for saddling up and sharing that number with us. She says she's an exclusively digital reader uh, and must be quite a passionate one at that. Congratulations. If you're listening to this show and you got more than $208 in Amazon credit, please let us know. Podcast at bookriot.com. All right. And one more update. We also talked a couple of weeks ago about a Barnes and Noble news story that they were going to be putting high end restaurants into some of the stores. Did you see this? Yeah, yeah. I hadn't seen this updated thing, but I remember the original. So Barnes and Noble did a call earlier this week about like their fiscal standing and sort of an update for investors that becomes the record for the industry. 
update. And so they're going to try them in four places. Um, Adena, Minnesota, Folsom, California, Loudoun County, Virginia, and Eastchester, New York. And I think Loudoun County, is that near DC? Do you know? I have no idea. I've never heard of that. We are shameful Virginia. <laughs> I know. I've lived here my entire life. I'm Googling it. <laughs> um, yeah, it's yeah, it's a little bit west of uh, like Bethesda. So it's okay. like northeastern Virginia. It's a Nova situation. Okay, so we will go on a field trip there. Uh, Ooh, yes, please. <laughs> and I just don't no. understand. So this is part of a bigger Barnes & Noble strategy to really double down on bricks and mortar because they've had trouble with Nook for forever. They've had trouble competing in the ebook space with Amazon for a long time. And so they're really betting on their bricks and mortar stores to help get their profits back in the right direction. But I just don't understand. The cafes in some of these new ones are going to be twice the size and they're going to have table side service. They'll be overseen by an executive chef. They're going to serve wine and beer. And Barnes & Noble expects that these spaces will drive more customers to the store and will help make each outlet more of a destination for those in the community. So I think they're going for a like, honey, let's go on a date night to Barnes and Noble. And instead of like going to dinner somewhere else and then stopping off at the bookstore, you just do the whole thing at the bookstore. Mm -hmm. But restaurants are like notoriously difficult to run and make profitable. <laughs> I also feel like they're the sort of people who are going to go eat dinner at Barnes and Noble are the sort of people who would already go to that Barnes and Noble anyway. Like you're not, it's not a new customer mm. driving thing. It's but, just more dollars from the same customer. Yeah, like for example, the Starbucks by my house now serves like beer and wine and hors d'oeuvres at night. It does. Yes, yes. I and, did not know that one, and I don't understand it because like. I'm here for the coffee? That's always what... Why would I come here for... I don't trust you <laughs> with well, wine and beer. Like, our city is not short on good places to go drink beer and wine. It's really not. And so, like, Barnes & Noble, why would I trust you with food? You know? Like, I don't understand... I don't understand. <laughs> but if it works, then also... I mean, I love Barnes & Noble, and I want them to stay in business because yeah, yeah. I like Amazon having a real competitor. But... Um, so if it works, awesome. But I don't know that I would necessarily be like... Let's go to dinner at the at the bookstore. Yeah, I, I think and I think Jeff and I have talked about it a couple times that a thing both of us would like to see Barnes and Noble do is create smaller stores that try to have more of that like indie feel where you've got booksellers that can hand sell. And I know that some Barnes and Noble booksellers are excellent and are great hand sellers because I know them. Yeah. Um, but the stores have also been placing such a focus on Nook and on digital and on, you know, upselling certain titles at the cash registers that it's difficult to do that like passionate book selling job. And it would be interesting to see them refocus on sort of those customer relations, especially for people who don't have an indie. And so they want that experience. But mm. Barnes and Noble is the only place near them. Like if you're a diehard reader, finding a bookseller that you click with, you can become a gold mine for that bookseller. Yeah, <laughs> if they understand you. It's so that's continuing. If you want to read more about Barnes and Noble's fiscal update, we'll have a link. It's a publisher's weekly piece in the show notes and you can check that out on your own and let us know what you think would you go to dinner at barnes and noble i am just not sure that i'm going to go have a burger at barnes and noble um but i'm notoriously ungenerous about like pretty much everything so <laughs> especially food though like I'm, I'm i'm a little snooty about food and like the food that you get at the barnes and noble the places that have cafes now is like you know frozen reheated stuff the same kind of food that you got at starbucks right um 
So I'm already kind of like, what is this and restaurant going to be like? like? In my uh, head, it's like airport food. Yeah, yes, exactly. And That's what it is. <laughs> I think I really want to know what the atmosphere of those restaurants is going to be like. Like, will it be basically bricked off from the rest of the bookstore or just with windows? Or is it going to be open air to the bookstore the way that the Barnes & Noble cafes are? Because if that's the case, like I'm paying a premium for food that has an executive chef, but I have to like listen to your child screaming a few aisles over. Mm-hmm. And also, um, are the books just going to smell like french fries now? Oh. Like, this is the, the first thing that I thought of when they, the first time months ago, when they said they were opening a restaurant at Barnes & Noble, was like, oh, is my... I'm going to go buy books and they're just going to smell like food. Because like sometimes when I buy a book at the Barnes & Noble by my house, which mm-hmm. has a big cafe, I take it home and it smells like coffee, which is fine because I like the smell of coffee. But will the smell of French fries age well? Who knows? Yeah. And what kind of rules will they make about bringing un- unpaid for books into the restaurant? Because you yeah, can you take get, a book like, that you're just browsing into the cafe. And I can't mm-hmm. tell you how many books we had to damage out when I worked for Barnes & Noble. Oh, no. Because people spilled coffee on them. Yeah. Somebody spills coffee. And they know, of course, they never like tell you that they spilled coffee on it. They just leave it sitting on the table with coffee or like with a cookie smush between the pages. Um, it feels like, oops, ketchup is just a thing that's bound to happen. Yeah. I have well, questions, good luck, I guess. Barnes and Noble. Yeah, good luck or something. <laughs> we'll go check out the one in, in Virginia when it opens. Yes, we'll go on a road. Maybe it'll be open. Well, who knows? If it's open by the fall, we can like wrap that into our trip up to the National Book Festival. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Invite Marilyn Robinson out to dinner with us at Barnes & Noble. We already interviewed her and asked her about Beyonce, so I feel like this is just the next step in our, That's true. In our friendship. <laughs> <laughs> in our friendship. The friendship she doesn't even know exists. She doesn't need to know. It's fine. It's headcanon. <laughs> It's yep. Mandy, Becky, and what are we going to call Marilyn? I guess Mary? we probably just have to call her Marilyn. Yeah, no, there's no, there's no nicknaming. <laughs> Marilyn Robinson. <laughs> oh, okay, bring me into our next story, because this is in your, this is in our home city, but this is your county that we're talking about. Yeah, y'all. All right. So this is a, a, a school book banning story, which we talk about these all the time on this show, but we're talking about this one specifically because it's my school system and my children are going into this school system in September, so it it hits a little bit close to home. Um, But there is, this summer, there has been kind of a controversy about It's Chesterfield County in Virginia, um, the public school summer reading list for high school and middle school students. There's been a bit of an uproar about it. Um, Some parents objected to some of the titles included uh, on the list. And so the county school system changed the list. They took the, uh, quote unquote, offending titles off and instead just added links um, to book lists from like Scholastic and Read Kiddo Read and these other organizations. And some of those lists included the offending titles, but... Like, officially, Chesterfield County can say they're not recommending them Mm -hmm. because they're just on a list. We didn't pick it. Whatever. Excuse me. And so, in response to this whole brouhaha, which has affected some of my friends who have kids in middle and high school, a a state senator named Amanda Chase has said that, has called the books that were removed on the list trash and pornography and... um, X-rated. Yeah, X-rated, and has said that the librarians should be dismissed who um, picked the books that were on the list um and she was one of wasn't she i think she was yeah she supported there was a bill in the general assembly um in last session mm-hmm. so i guess this was last year that was going to require teachers to notify parents before they assigned books with sex in them and the, our governor vetoed it thank god because it's a ridiculously stupid bill but she was a supporter of it of course and now she's calling for the dismissal of these librarians who recommended books books that include eleanor and park 
Oh, yes. Very pornographic, that one. Where nothing happens. Like, like they hold hands and she gets tingly. That is all. Like, that is all <laughs> that happens. And then the other books that they... Uh, there's not a full list in this article on the Chesterfield Observer, but... Um, they mentioned that uh, I don't. I've never said her her name out loud. Co Booth, I think it's Co C O E Booth, mm-hmm. had a book that was removed, and another one, a Walter Dean Myers book was removed. And Walter Dean Myers is just like a, a classic giant of young adult literature. And I don't think it's. Um, I think it bears mentioning that both of those authors are black, and that Eleanor and Park is about an Asian kid, uh, because there's it's no secret mm-hmm. that uh, most of this kind of pearl clutching about books that kids read. Most of them have to do with either LGBTQ issues or people who are not white, and this is what's happening here. Um, oh, and, and before you want to me. play devil's advocate with us in whatever angry email you're writing in your head about the statement Amanda just made, you should Google the stats about the most frequently banned books. Yeah, because you're just wrong. So, there's that. Um, so, the and the comments, I don't, I don't read the comments on most sites, uh, but the comment, I did read this on this, because this is my neighborhood, and there are a few who are like, well, this is book banning and this is ridiculous. And, um, but there, I was actually a little bit, uh, reassured because some, a lot of the comments are like, well, you know, if a parent doesn't want their kid to read a book, then that's fine. And they should be offered an alternative. Um, but you have no right to tell other people's kids what they can Mm -hmm. and can't read, which is what you're doing when you have a book removed from a reading list. Um, And also, which I agree with, if you don't want your kid to read a thing, then that's totally your prerogative to request a different thing. Um, But you have you have no right to tell another person's child what they can and can't read. And Chase is saying she wants the books taken out of the school libraries Mm -hmm. that they should. She said they never should have been bought in the first place. She doesn't want kids to be able to get their hands on it. And, you know, like, well, if they can see these lists that are on links, they're finding those websites anyway. Like, did you know that teenagers find websites (laughs) and Google things? Um, I think the piece that really chaps my cheeks about this one (laughs) is chaps my cheeks that's my like homage to Jeff today Um, there you go (laughs) is that Chase is saying that there should be parental notification about these things but then in the in response to the idea that parents should help their children pick out books she says that parents are too busy yeah nah like okay well parents should get notified and have all of the choices about these things but also librarians uh, which would imply that librarians, you know, need to be recommending stuff. But then there's also parents are too busy. So we should who should we trust then? It's just this doesn't make any sense. And it's one of those things that like this happens in school districts all over the place. Um, but when you have state members of your state government that get involved, it, like this is a real potentially legislated thing. And this woman has attempted to legislate uh, her values here so yeah and i also feel like if you this statement that that librarians should be dismissed for putting eleanor Mm -hmm. park on a on a reading list is just so patently absurd and idiotic that fine whatever but the thing about it that irritates me so intensely is if you don't trust school librarians and teachers enough to guide your child's reading in during the school year then take your kids out of public school and homeschool them yes because they're just doing their job like you trust them enough to teach them everything else except this thing that's a story about a brown person or except this thing that's about somebody who's gay like i you this just infuriates me so intensely i can't even like i'm so mad (laughs) i get so angry about it because it's it's this this projection of your Mm -hmm. weird biases on my kid and i will 
fight you. Yeah. <laughs> and in this particular case, and then we'll move on because we've, you know, well established <laughs> where Book Riot stands on these issues. Um, it, these aren't even required reading. It's just a list of suggested books for the summer. Yeah. Nah. Um, and this is just the level of like now we're we are actually wasting taxpayer dollars because there's a state senator getting involved. Um, so she and, can be dismissed. I would be fine with that. Well, I'm going to do my darndest because if I get it, my kids start school in September and if I hear whiffs of this crap, I'm going to, yeah, I'm going to be that angry mom at the PTA meeting, like shaking my fist and waving my whatever. We need more angry progressive moms in I those guess, school that board is meetings. My, that is my wheelhouse. <laughs> angry progressive mom. <laughs> I will put that on my tombstone. <laughs> right on, Amanda. Uh, Moving on. <laughs> take us to our next sponsor. Okay. It me. So our next sponsor is a title. It's a graphic novel called Dream Jumper which was written by Greg uh, Grunberg and Lucas Turnblum. And you, if you Google him, you will recognize Greg Grunberg because he was in Heroes, uh, oh. the TV show Heroes. Yeah, he was the um, the cop, the like psychic cop who found that girl under the stairs in that one episode. Um, he was in Alias and also Felicity, which is just a show that I love so much because it was my first exposure to like a character on TV with massively huge curly hair, which I had never seen before and I appreciate that a lot. Um, he's also got some big movie roles coming out this fall and Dream Jumper is his first graphic novel and it's based on dreams that his son Ben describes to him, which I think is just Ooh. so adorable. Um, and this is an all-ages uh, graphic novel, so it's appropriate for, for children and um, adults, as a lot of, as m- most kids' books are appropriate for adults. Um, so Ben is the character's, the main character's name. He has dreams, but all of his dreams are nightmares, and his nightmares happen, like they're real. Oh, and no. He's, yeah, and he's discovered that he can jump into other people's dreams. So his friends start having, uh, they like fall victim to this dream monster that prevents them from waking up, which sounds very Freddy Krueger-ish, which is yeah. why I, I mentioned that this is a an all-ages thing. So it's not it's not about Freddy Krueger. Um, so Ben teams up with a talking rabbit with a mysterious past. Okay, and that sounds like Donnie Darko. Yes. <laughs> so take adult horror movies and reduce them to books for like a 10-year-old. Um, so he teams up with the talking rabbit and to go off and save his friends and defeat this uh, dream monster. And if you want to take a look at it and see if it's a book that you're interested in, you can uh, see a free preview at scholastic.com slash dreamjumper. And the, um, the the person who illustrates it with him, Lucas Turnbloom, you might uh, be familiar with his work for Dark Horse. He does the Axe Cop graphic novel series. Oh, um, awesome. And has, is the cartoonist who does the comic strip Imagine This. So go to scholastic.com slash dreamjumper to check out a free preview and then go watch Heroes just for the nostalgia. Because <laughs> I missed that show. <laughs> I never actually saw it. I just missed the boat on Heroes. It's good. It gets a little near the end, but, you know, a lot of long-running TV shows do, so. It jumps Um, a couple of superhero sharks. Okay, the next headline, I'm jumping around on our agenda, but the next headline is one that you put in the agenda, and I have not read the story, so there's, it's something about a library cat who got fired? Oh, oh, the poor cat. Yeah, Um, this is just a, a kind of, whatever, silly thing that I wanted to talk about, but I love the idea of library cats. So there's this town in Texas called, I'm so sorry about this, it's called White Settlement. (laughs) What? I know. And the library has a kitty cat named Browser that they brought in to deal with the mice problem, (laughs) and then he just stayed. And the town council has, like, voted to evict the cat because municipal buildings are no place for animals. 
And so they're getting rid of the cat. Um, the quote is uh, accounts from a council member is city hall and city businesses are no place for animals. And so the the council voted to boot him. He's got 30 what? days to find a new place to oh live. Oh my gosh. Oh, and look, here he is in his little bow tie. I know, and he's got like a little blanket. Um, <laughs> so the mayor, this is like some crazy small child drama. This is Th- some parks and recreation level silliness. Oh, it gets better. The mayor and one of the city councilors said that the vote to remove the cat was petty revenge <laughs> for a different city employee not being allowed to bring their dog to work. It's Bobby Newport, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> So one person was not allowed to bring their dog to work and orchestrated a thing to get rid of the library cat in, like, small town vengeance. <laughs> I want to watch a Netflix series about this place. So instead of voting on something important, like changing their name to anything <laughs> other than White Settlement, this town council has evicted Browser the Library Kitty. Oh, my gosh. Uh, well, surely there's a line a mile long of people willing to adopt Browser. There is. There, there is. Yeah. Um, I can... <laughs> there's a petition to keep him um, <laughs> that had more than 600 signatures from people who live in in the city. Um, the mayor wanted to keep the cat, but you know, city employee vengeance is oh real. Oh my god! Maybe they should <laughs> hold a referendum. His name's Browser. They could call it Brexit too. <laughs> Anyway, that is the saga <laughs> of Browser in White Settlement, which is just the worst name for a city that you could possibly it come up really, with. It really, truly is. The, there's a quote here from a, the president of the Friends of the White Settlement Public Library. Nope. <laughs> you should really got to rethink what you call your organizations when you live in a town called White Settlement. Good grief. Poor <laughs> Browser. Someone's going to like make a documentary or there's going to be a Kickstarter to mm. build Browser. Browser's going to end up with like a mansion with his own big library in it or something. They should send him to just another library. They should. They like should. one town like over. A traveling library cat. Cats like to travel, right? <laughs> yeah, they're not at all notoriously grumpy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, where do you want to go next here? We have um, all sorts of like random stuff this week i don't know anything about this nine-year-old okay let me tell you about the nine-year-old this is another short story um a nine-year-old boy from clarksville tennessee his name is tyler fugit uh has seen his stepfather go in and out of jail it's the montgomery county jail and he and his mom decided that they wanted to help put more books into their local jails. Um, he and his mom traveled to a dozen stores to purchase more than 100 books to donate. And so he started this charity called Time to Read. Uh, and he's going to run it throughout the summer and also be donating books to hospitals, veterans homes and shelters. And so Tyler said, I don't want people to think bad things while they're in jail. I want people to get out and not do bad things again. And in I know, right? In Montgomery County, where he lives, no taxpayer money is used to purchase books. They rely 100% on donations from the community to stock their library, um, the chaplain of the uh, jail told them. So Tyler's generosity is truly appreciated and is making a big difference. Uh, in Montgomery County, inmates are allowed to check out a Bible and three other books every two weeks, um, which if you have all that time on your hands is not that many books. No. And if the supply is small, then you could very quickly burn through all of them. So our hats are off. Tyler is our hero of the week. He gets the cape uh, for founding Time to Read and raising money to put books into his uh, local community. 
I want him and that little girl who did the black girls book yes. drive mm-hmm. to like team up and I don't know be president. They together. get a Netflix show. Yes, they do get a Netflix show. I want a reality TV series about these two instead yes. of whatever. Instead of whatever else they were thinking about developing. Yes. The Bachelorette Part 40. I don't know anything about it, actually. Maybe The Bachelorette is a great show. I have no idea. (laughs) I feel like you can safely assume it's probably not. Yeah. But that's fine. Everything doesn't have to be great. That's true. Lord knows I have some embarrassing TV habits, and we won't even get into your Victorian farming. I know. I Yes. My reality (laughs) show's are not as um, salacious as The Bachelorette, maybe, <laughs> but are uh, on the opposite end. So I was going to say, what's awful. the opposite of salacious? <laughs> and there's so much clothing, so many <laughs> skirts. I am. I do obsessively rewatch Victorian Farm, um, the BBC series, and also Edwardian Farm, and also Victorian Pharmacy. Y'all, I'm just... I'm, <laughs> nerd hat. Let's talk about Suki Kim and not Please. me anymore. Yes, let's talk about Suki Kim. <clears throat> this is so interesting to me. Do you want, do you want me to... Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll go with it. Okay, so Suki Kim is a Korean journalist who's from South Korea and she moved to North Korea undercover to teach undercover as uh, well, I don't remember what she was teaching English maybe I think so and she was the only journalist to go undercover yeah so she's yeah she to, yeah to teach ESL um, to at an, an evangelical university in Pyongyang so she was teaching English to sons of like really high ranking officials in the North Korean government so these are like the elite um, the elite of the top of the top kids uh, in North Korea and so she stayed there for like a decade do as an investigative journalist, like the, the lengths that she had to go through to hide her notes and her research. And she was constantly being watched. You know, there's she lived in a locked compound that was always under surveillance. All the classrooms were bugged and recorded. This whole thing. Yeah, it says she backed up her research on an SD card every night that she hid in a different room in different spots. And she always did the hiding with the lights off in case there were cameras. Yeah. So, whoa. And so she the culmination of all of this was a book that she wrote called Without You, There Is No Us, My Time with the Sons of North Korea's Elite. And instead of being marketed as a work of intense and long term investigative journalism, which it is, it was marketed as a memoir, um, as a like a sales tactic, because apparently memoirs sell better than works of investigative journalism. But the criticism that she's gotten has been so gendered. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the fact that it was sold as a memoir is in and of itself so gendered. Um, and so she wrote a big piece for the New Republic about her problems with the criticism that she's received. And I am, I don't know, like, want to punch stuff for her mostly. <laughs> yeah, it's, you know, the book has been out for a year or two. It mm-hmm. came out, so it came out in 2014, I think. Um, so this is like, she's passed the hardcover promotional surge. She's passed the paperback promotional surge. It almost seems like her publisher was like, you can't talk about how we screwed you with yeah. the way your book was categorized while we're still trying to sell your book. Or maybe she got some good advice from her agent about that. But now she's got some distance. And so she is telling the truth. And she says, you know, that six months before publication, when she saw the book cover was the first time that she knew they were going to market it as a memoir. And she emailed her editor and said that she didn't feel comfortable that um, calling her book a memoir trivialized her reporting. Not that there is anything wrong with actually writing a memoir, but this is not that. Right. Uh, this is serious investigative journalism, as you said. She says, I wasn't simply trying to convey how I saw the world. I was reporting how it was seen and lived by others. Um, Her editor wouldn't budge. They said it was a sales decision. 
She tried to push back and said, this is no eat, pray, love. And her agent laughed at her and said, you only wish. But the whole point was that she did not wish that it was eat, pray, love. Here's the paragraph that just really killed me. As the only journalist to live undercover in North Korea, I had risked imprisonment to tell a story of international importance by the only means possible, by casting my book as personal rather than professional, by marketing me as a woman on a journey of self-discovery rather than a reporter on a groundbreaking assignment. I was effectively being stripped of my expertise on the subject I knew best. It was a subtle shift, but one familiar to professional women from all walks of life. I was being moved from a position of authority, what do you know, to the realm of emotion. How did you feel? Yeah. <laughs> and also the miscategorization of her book disqualified her from journalism awards, which yes. after you spent 10 years of your life investigating a thing to be disqualified from awards mm-hmm. because of a silly sales decision feels just like such a punch in the well, gut to me. I just really cannot believe that if this had been a book by a man who yeah. had lived undercover for a decade, it would have come out as a memoir. And the like one of the books that won either the Pulitzer or the National Book Award, I don't remember which, last year, was a big deep dive into ISIS. Mm-hmm. That was a similar kind of investigative journalism. There's a Pulitzer for investigative journalism like every year, or for journalism at least. And it often goes to like big deep works of this. It's this is not cool. Like, I understand that publishing exists to sell books. Like, fundamentally, this is a business that's about business. It's about selling books. It's not about supporting your art, uh, no matter how much publishers like to say it's just about loving books. It's about this is a noble profession. It's a business. It, we, you know, publishing exists to sell books. And her editor may have felt that he or she was doing their job when they categorize this as a memoir because it would sell more. But like, if you did not think that you could sell this book as what it was, you should not have bought this book in the first place mm-hmm. to publish is really where it comes down. Um, and publishers make all kinds of decisions about publishing things that aren't going to sell because they think they're important. You know, like you get to publish your esoteric book of poetry because you underwrote it by selling a jillion copies of the Da Vinci Code. And this is a thing that publishers talk about. So why could this book not be one of those? Why couldn't it be? We have this really important work of investigative journalism. It's about North Korea. This woman went undercover for 10 years. We could probably sell more of it if we sold it as a memoir, but it's important to position this book as what it is. So even if we sell fewer, we want this book out in the world. We want to represent it correctly. Um, I just like I understand how this decision got made. You can sort of picture what the meeting was like where someone was like, well, what if we sold it as a memoir? Um, Then book clubs will buy it. And then she can go on all the women's daytime talk shows, which all of this is so gendered. Like, why wouldn't? the view want to have on a woman who had this experience as a journalist. I just like if John Krakauer had gone undercover. Oh yeah. This would not be a memoir. Well, it's, I mean like John Krakauer is a perfect example. You think about how much investigative journalism has been done about rape campus or campus yes. rape culture by women that's ignored. And then he writes Missoula and suddenly it's all anybody can talk about because a man, a man, you know, mentioned it. There's also an interesting racial element to this. The fact mm-hmm. that she is South Korean and she says in this article that there are only two kinds of books on North Korea. Those by white journalists who visited the country under the regime's supervision and as told to memoirs um, by defectors. So when the book, when an experience in North Korea is coming from not just a woman, but an Asian woman, it loses, like, she loses credibility with every aspect of her identity that isn't white male journalist. So just by the function of being from South Korea, which gives her actually more authority than any white American or Western journalist visiting the country um, 
and being supervised 24 hours a day by the government, um, she has so much more authority inherently, but they they spun it in the opposite direction. And she talks a lot about how at her readings, um, when she was, you know, doing events for the book, she would at every stop notice that there was always a white man in the audience who was mm-hmm. hostile to her and who would challenge her work, despite the fact that he had never been to North Korea and had no expertise in the subject at all. Um, and her, the criticism that she started to get was that she was putting people in danger and that she was selfish and only doing it for the money. Like somebody goes to North freaking Korea for 10 years to, to teach English as a second language for no money. Like she didn't get paid to do it. Um, and investigative journalism books cl- are clearly not selling like gangbusters. Yeah, and like... Which is another interesting thing. That, like, so it's marketed as a memoir. And when women write memoirs, and this happened with Eat, Pray, Love, when women write memoirs, they get these accusations of being selfish, of being too self-centered, of only doing it for the money. So no matter what, like if, 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 if it had been marketed as investigative journalism, she would have had all of this, you know, the authority that she does have. But marketing as a memoir isn't just an insult based on her gender and a little bit on her race, but it also opens her up to all this other loaded gendered criticism that memoirs that women write get anyway. Probably the grossest irony of it is that if she had gone to a publisher and been like, I want to go undercover and I want to write about it and it's going to be a memoir, she would have gotten like a million dollar advance Mm -hmm. it could have like you could have you could do this as an eat pray love if you wanted to exploit the sensationalism of the experience Mm -hmm. but she was not trying to do that she was trying to really get inside and present a journalistic look at what was happening in north korea and so she took a book deal for investigative journalism that i assume was not a million dollar deal (laughs) seriously (laughs) like this it's just this is maddening all the way around i'm really glad that she's talking about it publishing has to keep talking about how the the way that we categorize things does matter um, and not just for a sales effect but for what authority it confers or removes from the people who write different kinds of books. This is a really excellent, it's a long essay in The New Republic that Suki Kim wrote. We'll have a link to it in the show notes. I sincerely recommend that you read the whole thing, Mm -hmm. uh, whether you agree or not with our takes on it here. This is really worth considering. I think the most notable thing that happened in books this week. Yep. Oh, man. Indie publishers? Yeah, let's do that. All right, you do that one. I okay. feel like I've ranted for, yeah, so <laughs> for this fine. entire show. <laughs> we've talked a lot about, you know, all sorts of different bookstores that have been open, but I don't think we've really hit on this. Independent publishers, but at, like independent presses, we're not talking about self-published individuals, um, have re- begun. There's this increasing trend of them opening their own retail bookstores. So a few weeks ago, Milkweed Editions, which is a long-established literary press, is opening an independent, announced they're opening a store in Minneapolis, uh, not long after that, Curbside Splendor, which is a pretty new small press in Chicago, revealed that they're going to open a bookstore in Chicago's South Loop. And so there's a piece on uh, LitHub is sort of wondering, like, what is going on here? Uh, these small presses are typically very involved in the hearts of their communities. And, you know, building a bookstore is a way to provide a physical space for a community. Hub City Press did this in Spartanburg, South Carolina um, a few years ago. They sell the books that they publish, but they also sell general interest books as well. And there are literary nonprofits that are jumping into the act. Um, So, you know, they're sort of reflecting here on how it says just a few years ago in the throes of the Great Recession, the traditional publishing industry was in trouble. Indies had been written off. Borders went under. And so we saw that even big boxes were struggling 
And then Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and Apple were all competing and filing lawsuits. And self-publishing was supposed to be the next big thing, um, which was like a print is dead, bookstores are dead, self-publishing <laughs> ebooks is the way of the future. And um, e- the mainstream media, e- like in books, even sort of started to come around to that. There were at least some very big stories about uh, self-publishing as the way to go. And it seems that we have, that's not happening. There are some people every year who have great success with self-publishing, but it's not become the new, you know, gold standard. Um, but we're seeing these smaller presses that often have trouble even getting on the shelves of big box bookstores or getting discovered in the algorithms of, you know, Amazon and Barnes and Noble sort of setting up shop in their own neighborhoods, um, selling their own books and reaching out to their communities while also stocking a bunch of the other stuff that a reader who wanders into a bookstore is likely to look for. Um, I think this is really interesting. Yeah, it's, um, I'm really interested to see how they do. Yeah. Because the Melville House store has been open for however long they've been in that building, mm-hmm. um, which they I talk about in this uh, article. And I've been to that store, and it's, well, it's not, I mean, whatever. It's their offices, but the front of it is a storefront. Yeah. Um, and it's Since cute. 2008, it's nice. so it's been there for eight years. Yeah. And I, I I mean, they're obviously not just a store. They would be there anyway, because it's where they their <laughs> staff is located. Um, but they are still putting in the effort to, to keep all of that stock there and to, uh, to sell the books. So it must be, you know, doing well. Um, and these other, like Curbside Splendor and was it Milkweed, I think, in here, mm-hmm. was talking about, yeah, they're going to focus their stores not just on their own titles, but on a lot of titles from different independent presses. And there's an interesting quote from the um, the editor-in-chief of Curbside Splendor said, uh, we're going to have an educational po- component because people don't necessarily know about indie literature. Our focus is, is on delivering literature to people who don't know what they're looking for and maybe don't even know it exists. So that's interesting. I don't know how I feel about that, but um, good luck, I guess. Yeah, I think they're talking about like consumer education in the sense of, you know, a, a, a book reader who reads like a book a month mm-hmm. and just wanders into a bookstore might not be super into small presses or they're just primarily reading the big front list titles that everybody is talking about. So I think there's a lot of interesting opportunity here to sort of pair those books up. Um, And we see that happen in press releases from people at small presses who are like, you know, here is our new title. And I think this is a really great fit for your readers who liked X, Y, and Z that were on the bestseller list or that were the big buzzy books of summer or whatever that like, if everybody's heard of this other book, here's our small press book that they will also like, but getting discovered is really hard. And so this looks like a smart attempt to sort of make their own playing field to me for these indie presses to get people in the store to sell them the books that they're coming in looking for and then also take charge of their own discoverability by Mm -hmm. you know they can control that they stock their own books and that they're going to hand sell their own books and there might be an added cool element of you know being in a bookstore and getting hand sold by a bookseller who's like oh and we publish this book yeah yeah, you know let me tell you about it i think that's pretty smart i would i am eager to check out one of these it's um yeah, I think independent presses, like small presses, are putting out some of the most interesting stuff, you know, these days. And so anything that gets those titles out there more, I think, is a good idea. Um, or at least one worth exploring. More people should be reading stuff from small presses. So Godspeed. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Good on you. It's a good piece. Uh, they name drop a bunch of the bookstores owned by indie presses and the ones that are coming soon and indie bookstores that stock a bunch of independent presses in this Lit Hub piece. So click on the link in the show notes and uh, take a look and see if there's one near you. And then let us know how you're 
little mission, fact-finding mission of bookstores <laughs> goes. Okay, let me do our last sponsor, and then we'll talk about badass librarians okay. for a minute. Uh, Book Riot's podcast is sponsored today by BookWitty. That's BookWitty, W-I-T-T-Y dot com. They are a knowledge sharing platform that allows people to share your thoughts, ideas, and anything related to books or reading. You get a personalized news feed there that allows you to see any new content that's posted by any of the people you follow. Sign up is free. You can order books from around the world. You get to benefit from fair prices and free worldwide shipping. So go to BookWitty dot com to sign up today. Again, it's free to sign up. You can learn about all kinds of books. Speaking of discovery, uh, you can follow other readers. They can follow you. You can shop and free shipping around the world. Bookwitty.com. They're also our sponsor of Book Riot Live this year. So you'll get a chance if you're coming to the event to meet them in person. And uh, they're great. They sponsored last year as well. So we appreciate them. Uh, Bookwitty.com. Again, it's a knowledge sharing platform about books. You can discover books from all over the world and free shipping all over the world. Gotta love that. So thanks to Bookwitty. Woot, woot. Okay, tell me about badass librarians. So this is such an oh man, I I love this kind of thing. There, so ancient like ancient manuscripts that were housed in like family homes in Timbuktu are were spirit like secretly spirited out of the country by people like scholars and using teenage couriers and like on boats and donkey carts and various and sundry secret methods of smuggling stuff out of a country after um, jihadists took the took Libya over and Mali um, in 2012 and so there's this secret like I don't even know what to call it organization cabal <laughs> go with cabal you always go with cabal I don't know, of librarians in Timbuktu who arranged this underground operation to take these ancient and priceless manuscripts from, you know, like the 15th century um, when Timbuktu was a kind of center of learning uh, and and to save them because Al-Qaeda was intent upon destroying them as they are intent upon destroying a lot of cultural, uh, significant cultural artifacts. Um, and these are manuscripts about like poetry. Some of them were sexual manuals, which, you know, when a, an extreme religious organization takes over a thing, you would expect them to try to destroy stuff like that. Or, you know, if you move to Virginia. <laughs> I'm so sorry, everyone who lives here. It's really not that bad. Um, so, yeah, like very cloak and dagger. And there's a book about it. That I th- Did you read this? The Battle I did read this book. Yeah. Yeah. Of Timbuktu. So there was a piece in the National Geographic last week interviewing Joshua Hammer, who is the author of The Baddest Librarians of Timbuktu, which is such an excellent title for a book, um, talking about how the librarians worked to secret these books out of the country as the jihadists came in. Um, And yeah, that's that's my story. (laughs) I think it's so (laughs) rad. And, you know, librarians do some radical work here in the U.S., um, obviously getting books into the hands of people who have no access and who need them and they they save lives in that fashion but this is like dan brown style using kids to smuggle stuff on donkey carts out of a country <laughs> is like it's, it is like actually radical it is so amazing so they would put manuscripts in boxes and then use the donkey carts to move them to people's basements and storage rooms and stuff like that to hide them as the jihadists came in. And then they would wait a couple months for stuff to settle down, and then they would move them out of the city uh, using, like, vehicles, which were escorted by these kids, these, like, teen couriers, over 600 miles of desert, going through all of these checkpoints and stuff, and essentially lying their way mile after mile until they could get them out of Timbuktu. So that is an amazing thing, and... 
hey, hey, librarians yeah. of Timbuktu. The like the book is really fascinating. It was positioned, and I blame this on the publisher. It was positioned as like an Ocean's Eleven style heist, and so I was expecting lots of action right from the get go. There is a lot of deep history about who the or like the first contemporary Timbuktu librarians were that started going around the country collecting these manuscripts and all of the work that they did to get funding to build libraries and to build storage facilities to keep these precious manuscripts in the condition that they were found in. Many of them had already begun to deteriorate because they were so old. And then there's deep history into how Al-Qaeda and Jihad first made their way into Timbuktu and who some of the key players were. And I was not expecting that. So I spent the time that I was initially reading the book being like, okay, but when is the heist? (laughs) (laughs) And and then you get to the heisty stuff and it's great. Um, But I think if you know going in and you're if you're really a student of history or you want to learn about this element, this part of history, it's totally fascinating and worth the read. The book, again, is The Badass Librarians of Timbuktu. It's by Joshua Hammer. And there's another book about this, these, uh, the same thing, these same people, the same phenomenon coming out later this year. So really cool, like actually radical elements of literary history. So the book ends in 2014. And he at the end of the interview, he gives an update, which is that all the manuscripts were collected in one large storage facility in Bamako. And so they are Altogether, there's work being done now to digitize them. The ones that were damaged in the course of being transported are being restored. And the, the head librarian is kind of keeping an eye on the situation in Timbuktu because he you know, would like to return them to where they were originally. But um, it's not looking like that's going to happen anytime soon. And um, now we just need like one of them to go missing and to be replaced with a cryptic clue and then you can <laughs> call in Robert Langdon. <laughs> yeah, we, yes. What are those, those things called? Those like long um, tubes that are... Oh, what are those called? I don't... Andy from Parks and Rec knows on the top of his head and I can't remember. Anyway, it, yeah, that's what we need. One of those tubey things with the spinning words. The Dan Brown tubey thing. Dan Brown tubey thing. Show title. <laughs> I think that's our show. It's, there's not a better note to end on than badass librarians. Uh, you can find show notes at bookriot.com slash listen. That'll get you to this podcast and all of our other podcasts, including Get Booked, which Amanda hosts every week with Jen Northington and gives customized book recommendations. If you are looking for a certain hyper-specific kind of book to suit your reading taste or for a gift for someone that you know, you should check out the show and give them uh, send your request their way. Thanks to our sponsors. Go to audiblepodcast.com slash bookriot to get your free 30-day trial. Check out Dream Jumper. You can go to scholasticbooks.com slash dreamjumper. And also check out bookwitty.com to get your free account there today. We are now in July when this show drops. So first of all, that's crazy. And secondly, for July, we are offering $20 off Book Riot Live registration with the code wheelhouse, all one word, W-H-E-E-L-H-O-U-S-E. So if you haven't registered yet, we have a ton of amazing speakers for Book Riot Live. Check out the speaker lineup, use the code wheelhouse to get $20 off your registration and come hang out with us, uh, us literally, uh, (laughs) in New York on November 12th and 13th. You can find us on Twitter. I'm Rebecca Shinsky, S-C-H-I-N. SKY. Amanda is I'm Amanda Nelson. Of course, Book Riot is all over the interweb. And if you've got a minute to rate or review the show on iTunes, we would certainly appreciate that as well. Until next time, have a good weekend. Bye. Bye.